0: How's everybody doing? Good, good. Are there any other uh, eggnog drinkers in the room besides me? Like, okay. So yeah, (laughs) it's worth getting excited about. Um, Southern Comfort makes this non-alcoholic eggnog that they sell at Kroger. And you only get like 30, There's there's like a 30 day noggy window that you have to consume as much as possible. <laughs> so uh, um, I just kind of go nuts during that, that that like month and a half that you have to like really consume as much um, eggnog as possible. But uh, anyways, that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about. It, unless you notice that I'm um, putting on weight in the uh, winter years, it's, it's, it's because of that. So anyways, um, we're in the book of Daniel. I, before I get into that, and I'm not very good at this, so bear with me for a second. But Josh and I spent the last year writing um, a book that we're selling, and we're selling the book and we wrote the book for, for church plants, essentially. But it goes through the story of this church, and it kind of goes through my story a little bit, and uh, it, again, we're, I'm weird about promotion, uh, promotion, promoting myself in any fashion. But, um, oh yeah, and I drank some NyQuil last night too. So if I, if I pass out on, on stage, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's, it's I probably need help. But uh, <laughs> we're selling this for 10 bucks here. It's on Amazon and it's on Kindle and all that jazz, but uh, we're selling it for 10 bucks and, and all the money we get from that. We're going to put into the churches that we support up in New England, up in Salem, and and um, up in New Hampshire, and, and up in Burlington, Vermont. So, if you want to pick up a copy of that, we, we Josh and I think it's it's decent. Um, it's at least legible, right? And you can at least read it. It's it's, but it's a decent book and it should help anyone. If you know anyone who's involved in ministry or is looking to start a church, it's really, really good for that. But anyways, there's that. It's enough of that. I don't want to talk about about that anymore. We're in chapter six today of Daniel. Now, if you have not been with us, uh, we've been covering the book of Daniel now for, gosh, several months. And last week we finished the second half of chapter 5, and what happens at the, at the end of chapter 5 is the Babylonian Empire, which was basically in charge of the known world at the time, fell, and it fell not because the, they hadn't had good leadership in the past, Nebuchadnezzar and his son Nebonidus were both very, very strong leaders, but the reason it fell is because it was now temporarily in the hands of a young entitled king named Belshazzar. And Belshazzar had this huge party, and he was extremely arrogant, and he was blasphemous to the true God. And if you guys don't remember, there was this handwriting on the wall that showed up in the middle of this huge party where there was gluttony and orgy and all these things were going on, and God kind of intervened. And that very night, the Babylonian Empire fell, and Belshazzar was killed, and there was a new leader um, named Darius that came in, and he led the Medo-Persian empire with another guy named Cyrus, okay? It was a divided kingdom, okay? So we talked about last week, we talked about some some, some kind of controversial stuff. We, we brought up the whole idea of the refugees and how we're to handle the issues in the world. And what we talked about was this, is that we as Christians, if you're a Christian in this room, we cannot start to address the issues in the world, in our city, in our nation, in our culture. We can't start to address those issues until we've addressed the issues inside of us. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about this, that we can't remove the specks from the people's eyes around us when we haven't removed the, the, the log from our own eyes. But once we've removed that, then we can start to help other people around us and they can help us. Okay, we talked about that. Now, what we're going to talk about this week, we're getting into some deep waters again, is we're going to talk about the difference between faith And what we call saving faith. There's a difference. There's a difference between faith, which about 70, according to reports, about 70% of the United States has faith. But there's a difference between a faith and a saving faith. And now we're going to get to that point because in chapter 6, which is probably the most famous chapter of the book of Daniel. Glad you guys are here to hear this. It's probably the most famous chapter. This is the chapter where Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. So we're going to cover the whole chapter. It's not a very complicated chapter. There's a lot of huge morals and huge metaphors that we can pull from this chapter, but the story's not hard to comprehend. Um, Next week when we get into chapter 7, that's when it gets really, really fun. We get into a lot of prophecy, but it's a pretty simple chapter, okay? So I'm going to pray. I'll do my best to break it down. You should have a notes handout in front of you, and um, you should have all that uh, uh, available to you. If you don't have a notes handout, it's on you version which is the Bible app, just click on more live event, I think is what it is, and all the notes and scripture and everything will come up. Um, Again, bear with me, I got a little bit of a cold. My youngest, Vi, uh, is very, very sneaky, and she sneaks into our bed at like four in the morning, and I woke up the other day and she was coughing, and she was like right there. And and so I caught whatever funk she has, so that's pretty awesome. Anyways, (laughs) chapter six, let me pray, we'll jump into this, and we'll see where God takes us, okay? Lord, I love you. God, I just pray that you keep your hand on us this morning. God, open up our eyes, open up our understanding. God, help us to uh, comprehend what you're going to say to us today. Father, if there are people in this room that, that don't know you or they're skeptical, I pray, God, that you start to reveal yourself to them today. If there are people in this room that know who you are, but maybe their faith is not what it should be, I pray, God, that you start to reveal more to them. Convict us. Help us, God. Take us to where you want us to go. Father, we want to pray for every church in our city, bigger churches, smaller churches. We don't really care, God, as long as they teach that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We want to pray for all of our homeless brothers and sisters, God, that are out in these elements right now, that you protect them and that you keep them safe, Lord. We want to pray for Eon and Echo and all the different things that are going on in 5,000 and the other ministries that are happening this morning. And God, just keep your hand on us. We love you, Lord. Help my words be accurate. And help everything I say, God, be a reflection of your heart. We love you, Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Okay, we are in chapter 6, book of Daniel, which is in the Old Testament, right after the book of Ezekiel. If you don't have a Bible, it's all right. I'm going to read the whole story to you. So here we go. So it says that Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy with no negligence or corruption found in him. Then these men said, we'll never find any charge against Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God." So the administrators and the satraps went together to the king and they said to him, make King Darius live forever. All the administration of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict for 30 days that anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty establish the edict and sign the document so that a law of the Medes and the Persians it is it is irrevocable and cannot be changed so king Darius signed the document okay so again if you haven't been here up until this point we've been talking about the Babylonian Empire, one of the greatest empires that's ever existed. That empire came to a close. It actually didn't last that long, only about 7, seven decades that came to a close, and now there's a new empire that is in power. And so the guy that is in charge of part of the empire is a guy named Darius the Mede. He came into power in the city of Babylon. And he started to restructure the government. It was much more democratic or more like a republic, if you will. So he started to set up a head, three underneath him, and then a group of governors, about 120 governors underneath him. So we know from history that Darius was a pretty sharp guy, pretty organized guy, a really, really good leader. He created these healthy systems, and he created these systems in order to keep politicians accountable— and responsible and so it wouldn't defraud the king. So he wouldn't be taken advantage of and a guy named Cyrus would not be taken advantage of. Now that's important because we're going to see in this chapter that he's going to be defrauded. So this is a very different kind of leader than we've seen thus far in the book of Daniel. We got to know Nebuchadnezzar or Nebi as our church calls him. We've gotten to know Nebuchadnezzar quite well. He became a follower of God. He had absolute power right? Absolute authority. And so Darius is different from him because Darius didn't have absolute authority. He had more committees. He had governors. Uh, Power and authority was kind of spread out more under Darius. Darius was also different than Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, because Belshazzar was just an entitled punk, right? Just a young kid who was handed an empire and partied like crazy and didn't know what to do with it. He's different from that and the fact that he was sensitive to the needs of his people. He loved his people, and he was a good leader. So Darius is unique. Not only is Darius unique, this chapter of Daniel is extremely unique. The reason why it's unique is the book of Daniel is a book of prophecy, right? It's a book about telling the future, essentially. And in fact, the Persians coming in and taking over the Babylonians was a prophecy that came into fulfillment. So this book of the Bible is different And it's similar to chapter 3 of Daniel in the fact that it has no prophecy. There's no prophecy in chapter 6. And there's really no history in chapter 6. There's a story that is historical, but there's no deep history in chapter 6. So it's basically a very simple story that has a moral to it. And it actually has a lot of morals we can pull out of it. But the big one is this. The big moral is the simple lesson of living righteously in alien surroundings. Basically, how one can live the way God wants them to live in a culture, in a land where most people do not. And so, to learn what it looks like to live righteously day to day is just as important as prophecy. And where Christians seem to make a big mistake is so many Christians are focused on the end of the world. They're so focused on the end times. Whenever people get saved, right, they just want to read Revelation. That's where everyone goes. And like the book of Revelation was only written for people who understand the Gospels well enough to start looking into the end times. And so the mistake we make is we're so focused on the end that we forget here and now. And Christians need to be developing themselves now. We need to be focused on our families now, our relationships now, us now. So we'll be prepared for the future. But we've skipped that process a little bit, and we need to get back to to kind of discipling each other and being discipled, okay? So Daniel, right? If you haven't been here for any of the book of Daniel, Daniel always stands out. He's just cream of the crop. He's the best of the best. And at this time, he's in his mid-80s. So not only is he the smartest and most intelligent, now he's just the wisest, right? He's lived through a lot of crazy stuff. And so we're not sure, because it doesn't tell us, we're not sure why Daniel was spared, he was, he was in the Babylonian Empire. The Persians came in and killed a bunch of people and took over. We're not sure why he was spared. But more than likely, it's because the Persians probably understood how intelligent of a man this was. Maybe they showed him some mercy because he was elderly… Maybe they just looked at him and said, man, this guy's a great speaker, great leader, great motivator. He's really, really wise, and he has a great reputation. Maybe we should use him. And that's probably more the case. So Darius made him second in command. No wonder all the other politicians were jealous, right? You come in and take over another empire, and then we take one of the guys from the empire that was just conquered and make him the second most powerful person. So of course they were upset. What this reminds us of, again, there's so many things we can pull from this book. What this reminds us is this. Daniel stood out because of his work ethic and because of his reputation. And we as believers, wherever we are, whatever alien surroundings we find ourselves in, whatever place of employment, whatever school, whatever situations we find ourselves in, we as believers, recipients of the Holy Spirit of God, should stand out. We don't have to be the best. We don't have to be the brightest, but we should always be the hardest workers. We should always have the best attitudes wherever we are. Everyone feels convicted right now, right? We should always stand out in our workplace. Even if we're not the best at playing soccer, they should say, man, that person always works hard. They always give it 100%. Christians should never be known for being lazy or for having bad attitudes at our occupations or at our schools. That's just not how we should be known. And so Darius pretty smart guy, set up this political system, right? And he set it up in a way to hold people accountable. But ultimately, he could not change their hearts. He could not change the jealousy. He could not stop the deception. So the fact that there was a conspiracy against Daniel shouldn't shock us, right? It's not the first time that people have done this to Daniel. So this shouldn't shock us. So the first point of attack that they're going to try to take, and it fails before it even gets launched, is they're going to try to attack his competency and his occupation. And we know because it says this, that that didn't go very far. Because when they tried to attack his competency, it didn't work because he was trustworthy, there was no negligence found in him, and he wasn't corrupt. Now, oftentimes, Christians come up to me. They say, man, I'm afraid I'm not going to get that promotion because there's this gossipy person at the office. There's this guy that always tries to stab me in the back, or there's this woman that always talks bad about me. And I say, look, as long as you're not being negligent, as long as you're working hard, as long as you're not corrupt and you're trustworthy, you're going to be okay. The truth will bubble up to the surface. Everything will be all right. And so we just need to make sure that we're doing everything that we're supposed to be doing. So Daniel was doing everything he was supposed to be doing, but there was a soft spot There was a vulnerability. And we know this because they said, well, we got to find something that has to contradict his God. His mastery in language, his mastery in culture and laws and literature would make his age in his mid 80s and his race a non issue. They didn't care that he was a Jew, they didn't care that he was old. Those things didn't work. He was too talented for those things to be a stumbling block. But, Daniel, his problem was he was monotheistic, which means he believed in one God, in the middle of a culture that was polytheistic. They believed in multiple gods. And so he would have received prejudice, much like people would receive prejudice because of their race or their age nowadays. Okay? So there was a prejudice there. And so again, another thing that we see that lines up with this book that was written 2,600 years ago is that the exclusivity of one God will always bring contention. Even in our culture, American culture, where 70% of America, it's funny, 70% of America says they identify with Jesus Christ, and on average, about 35% of America goes to church. So there's instantly a problem there. And then if you want to take it a step further, everyone loves Jesus until you make the stand that Jesus is exclusively the only God then there's an issue. And so not just in this polytheistic culture, but in our pluralistic culture that we live in now, people are fine with Jesus. They're fine with like the herbal tea drinking, you know, hippie Jesus. They love that. But when you claim that Jesus is the one that will judge humanity, then people have an issue. There's a tension there. There is a contention found in that statement. So the bad guys, right? They're going to they're they're go after Daniel. And though Daniel was different, he was monotheistic, there was no laws against being monotheistic. So he wasn't breaking the law. So what they were going to have to do is they knew that they could catch him, that he wasn't going to betray his God, so they were going to have to create and pass a law that made it illegal to pray exclusively to that God. Now, any good story, any good story, go back and look at any good story, it always seems like the early advantage goes to the one with malicious intent. It always looked like the bad guy has the upper hand. But we find out in any good story, that truth always wins. The good guy wins, right? And so we're gonna see this as the story unfolds. And so they bring this law to Darius. And though Darius was intelligent, extremely smart, right, a great leader, great motivator, great teacher, He was very smart, but he was no theological giant. That was not his expertise. So when they came to him saying, hey, I got a good idea. Let's pass a law that says no one can worship anyone for 30 days. It's just 30 days except for you. No one can pray to anyone. No one can lift anyone up except for you. And so what he was thinking, being the leader that he was, It he's like, well, okay, we just acquired, there was this acquisition that just happened where we acquired all these different countries. This would be a great way to unify us. So he wasn't thinking, wow, I want everyone to worship me. He's thinking, okay, this is a good way to focus everyone on the new Persian empire. So, okay, great, let's do that. He was thinking unification. Now, again, for us as Christians, unification is something we should strive for. I'm not talking that we should accept other beliefs. What I'm saying is, Christians are called to live harmoniously with the people around us. So everyone talks about the coexist stickers, right? And Christians are always the target of those coexist stickers. And when you look at Christianity, Christianity is a religion of coexistence. What I mean is not that we adopt other faiths, but we should be able to live harmoniously with our neighbors. Regardless of how they believe, regardless of how they live their lives. That's what we see in the Bible. That's what we see out of Christ. But what we also need to know as Christians is that unification is not always a possibility. What I mean by that is this. Jesus Christ said there will be people that will hate you. They will not want to be your neighbors. They will not love you simply because you carry the name Jesus Christ. That will happen. So unification is something we strive for. We strive to live in harmony with the people around us, but we also need to know that that is not always a possibility, that that is not always uh, uh, reasonable. So these men, they go in, they talk to Darius, and they don't, they don't just want a handshake or like a you know, high five or anything like that. They want it in writing. These corrupt satraps, governors, wanted the edict in writing. The reason why they wanted it in writing is, is when it was on paper, it could not be changed. Once it was on paper, they had to follow the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And if someone broke the laws of the Medes and the Persians, they went into the lion's den So when Darius was approached, he assumed that everyone already agreed on this because they lied. They said, hey, we've already talked to everyone. Everyone thinks it's great. And he would assume, okay, well, Daniel was a part of that. He's He's actually the boss of all these guys. So if they all say that everyone agreed on it, it must be okay. So he signed the edict. So something that I pulled, this is for me, something that I pulled out of this first chunk that we just read is this. As a believer, and if you're not a believer in here, I'm just going to tell you, if you decide to to follow Christ, the teachings of Jesus will always be counterculture. The teachings of Jesus will always bring attention with the teachings of the world. And I'm not just talking about heaven and hell. I'm talking about the world tells you to go out and take, take, take buy that bigger house, buy that fancier car, you work hard because you are the center of the universe. And the Bible tells us exactly the opposite. Do not be materialistic. If you have excess, get rid of it and give it to the poor. The Bible tells us don't rush to be first in line, plow over old ladies so you can get that veggie steamer the day after Thanksgiving, right? Are you guys not sickened by our culture when you see that crap, right? So the Bible says the first will be last, and the last will be first. The Bible says don't walk into the banquet and sit next to the, the person that's through the banquet. Sit far away so hopefully they will ask you to come. And the world says, no, 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 go in there. Rub shoulders with the elite. Kiss butt until you work your way up the ladder. The Bible says, no, 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 no. Be humble. Be humble. Be humble. Be humble. Whatever the world does, Jesus Christ's teachings will always bring tension with that culture. Always, and what the Bible tells us to do in Romans, it says, "Do not conform to this culture. Do not conform to this age." Doesn't mean you have to be a freak weirdo. Doesn't mean you have to listen to Way FM all the time. It doesn't mean that. But no offense. But but it says not to conform to this age, but be transformed. Think differently. Live differently. Act differently. Renew the way that you think, renew the way that you act. The teachings of Jesus will always be counterculture, okay? Next part. So, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, this is so vitally important, this part. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upper room were open towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group, and they found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king, and they asked about his edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days, anyone petitioning any God or man except you, the king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, As the law of the Medes and the Persians, the order stands as it is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Well, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, has ignored you. The king and his edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased, and he set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. When these men went to the king and said to him, you, as king, know it's a law of the Medes and the Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. So here's something that comes from chapter 6, verse 10, that is vital. In verse 10, we don't just see the central message of this chapter, we get to see into the depths of Daniel's character, that when the junk hit the fan, the first thing Daniel did was run to God. Listen, when a law was passed that contradict Daniel's faith, he didn't post it on Facebook about how dumb the government was, he didn't tear other people down, he didn't start a campaign of hatred, he didn't even talk bad about people or gossip prayed. Christians, when laws are passed that contradict our beliefs, our first go-to should not be a politician. It shouldn't be social media. It should be Christ. That's where we should run. And so we ask the question, When stress arises, when confusion sets in, when heartache or anger or legislation or the curveballs of life are thrown our way, do we run to what the Bible calls the strong tower of God? Or do we run to food? Or do we run to sex? Or do we run to pornography? Or do we run to some kind of other excess? Do we drown in depression? Do we run to anchor? Where do we find our source of comfort? Where do we find our source of refuge? And the place we should run is to God. The first place we should go to. It's funny when people say, man, I haven't been to church in a while because I just, you know, I haven't been living right. And I'm like, then you should be at church all the time. You should be here more and more and more with good people that can lift you up and help you in your relationship with God. This is where broken people should be. This is where they should run. And so he went upstairs, opened up his windows. He probably lived in a pretty sweet apartment, right? I mean, he was the second most powerful guy in the empire, so he probably had a pretty sweet pad. Walked up to his, his, his room, opened up the windows facing Jerusalem. And the reason why he did that is it was customary for the Jews to do this. Jews faced the temple because that's where the Holy Spirit of God was, the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. They would face the, the, the temple and they would pray. And because of this edict... It would have been easy, this is so important, because of the laws passed against his faith, it would have been easy for him to compromise his faith. But he didn't. It would have been easy for, he could have at least just shut the windows, right? You don't want people to see you praying. So he would have at least shut the windows, but he didn't. The windows were open. He could have just chilled out for 30 days, but he didn't. He didn't compromise his faith, even when the law contradicted his faith. He did not do that. And so what we see here is that Christians are sometimes called to break the law. You guys are going to leave here and just speed away, right? Corey said so. No, that's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) Christians are called to uphold the law whenever the law goes along with the laws of God. If the laws of the land coincide with the laws of God, we are to follow those laws. But whenever laws break the laws of God we are to not follow those laws. Romans 13 is very, very clear about government. And whenever Christians post a 666 on Barack Obama's head and put it on Facebook, that breaks Romans 13, where it says to respect your government and the powers and authority, because God has placed those there. We are to respect them. Don't have to agree with them, but we have to respect them. And so we as Christians are called to follow Romans 13, obey the laws. But There are times in our culture where laws break God's laws. In the 1950s, in Nashville, Tennessee, just to give you a little history lesson, the reason why we have a big Parthenon in downtown Nashville is because Nashville is called the Athens of the South. It was called the Athens of the South because in the 1950s, Nashville is actually very racially progressive. There wasn't just a lot of African-Americans that would do sit-ins and diners. A lot of young white people would join them and get beat up with them because they believed that the laws of land contradicted the laws of God. So in these diners in downtown Nashville, young black people would sit down and white people would sit down right next to them. And they did this and they broke the laws of the land because those laws contradicted the laws of God. There's no racism in the laws of God. And so they purposely broke those things. In fact, there's a very famous pastor, Martin Luther King Jr., who broke many, many laws and was thrown in jail many, many times because he stood for the laws of God, not for the laws of man. There are times for us to break the laws of man, okay? So there's some elements to Daniel's prayer that are worth taking note of. He goes up to his room, opens up his window. And I love the description it gives. It says that he got down on his knees. He had a place of prayer. He was persistent. He did this every single day. He had these different postures. There's something about postures. There's something about getting on your knees in front of the Lord. Something about raising your hands in front of the Lord. There's something about holding out your hands. There's these different postures. And we see this out of Daniel. He praised God. He had consistency. He petitioned God. He told God what he needed. And so from this, prayer is a very interesting thing. We don't do it near enough, but prayer needs to be sporadic, spur of the moment, but it also needs to be calculative, intentional. It needs to be casual at times. It needs to be formal at times. It needs to be long, short at times, strategic, focused on God, focused on other people. And lastly, prayer actually is the the least about us. It's more about God. It's more about others, but we're a part of that. And we need to pray for our, our, the things we need as well. And so these guys, these governors, these, these satraps, were kind of like tattletales, right? So they caught Daniel breaking the law, and they went and told the king. And the king was extremely upset about this. Not that his law had been broken, but that one of his favorite leaders, one of the guys that he was closest to, he was upset that that guy got caught. He was upset that that guy was ensnared by this trap, so it says he desperately tried to free Daniel. All day long until nighttime, he tried to do this, but public opinion was more powerful than absolute power. It was more powerful, the public opinion of people. So he gave in to their demands, right? He couldn't change it. So the satraps reminded Darius one more time that there was no way he could back out of this edict. And so, keep in mind that one evil empire had conquered another evil empire. So, when we read about the lion's den, we shouldn't be surprised about the brutality. The reason why the Persians didn't burn people alive is they used fire in their worship, so they saw that sacrilegious. So, they did something different. They just threw people to a bunch of live uh, lions in a pit, right? We look at that and we're just like, that's really cruel and unusual. We strap people to electric chairs. But anyways… So they saw this crazy thing going on, and it was cruel, and it was unusual, and it was, it was pretty barbaric, but that was the culture at the time, right? And so what we see is this, another moral, is that Darius never intended for one of his friends and closest leaders to be thrown into a lion's den. He never intended that. He never intended anyone to be thrown into that pit. But the false gods of the Persians led them to do extremely brutal, grotesque things. And the king realized too late that his lifestyle was producing a result that he never wanted to get. In our lives, all of us in this room, we read about the atrocities that people have done, and all of us are potential. All of us have the potential to do atrocious things if we do not get a grip and ask God to help us deal with and forgive us of and save us from the sins in our life. I've talked about this before. If you've come to this church for any length of time, you've heard me talk about Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy is a fascinating character to me. He killed 60-some-odd women back in the 80s, and he eventually became a born-again believer right before he died. I know you guys are like, yeah, of course. But right before he was about to die, a guy named James Dobson, maybe you've heard of James Dobson, Focus on the Family, sat down with Ted Bundy the day before he was to be executed, and he said, Ted, tell me how you got started down the road of killing 60-plus women. And Ted Bundy thought for a second, and he goes, I started looking at Playboy magazine. Started with Playboy, it moved on to more graphic porn, it moved on to more sadomasochistic porn, it moved on to picking up prostitutes, it moved on to raping prostitutes, it moved on to killing young women. It was this progression, and he never got a hold of it, and he never let Jesus come in and forgive him and stop those things until it got to an extent that he never intended for it to go to, and all of us have the potential to do atrocious things if we don't get a grip on sin. So, what Darius realized was this. Darius's sin, his neglect of God had gotten to such a point where he couldn't turn it around now. He had tried human deliverance and it failed. Now he realized that Daniel's fate was in the hands of God. The only one who can save this now is God. And we too, building off of what I just said, we too must humble ourselves enough to realize that if our past is going to be healed, Jesus has to heal it. If we're going to be equipped to live in the crazy world that we live in right now, we have to have the help of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to have a hope of a better tomorrow, not just here, but in eternity, we also have to depend on God. It is in God's hands. And so we have to place our lives, we have to place our thinking, we have to place everything we do in the hands of God if we're gonna have hope of fixing the past, equipping for the present, and giving us hope for the future. Okay, next part. You guys with me? I feel like you're awfully quiet. Okay, good. For the seven of you who are still with me, here we go. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and the signet ring of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel, "'Daniel, servant of the living God!' the king said, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. They haven't hurt me, for I was innocent before him. Also, I have not committed a crime against you, my king. The king was overjoyed, and he gave orders to take Daniel, out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den, uninjured, for he trusted in his God. The king then gave command, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den, they, their children, and their wives. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. That's happy, right? (laughs) So this lion's den, this pit was probably underground and it was probably more like a mound and you could climb on top of this mound and there was a hole. There was a hole there so they could throw food down to this lion's and then probably towards the end of this hill or this mound, there was another entry point to where people could come in and out and they could have brought the lions in and out. So that's what this looked like. And so as they threw them down in there, they sealed up the top and they poured hot wax on it. And they would have worn these rings, right, that had a signet, only one-of-a-kind ring. And they would stamp their rings into the wax, showing that if anyone touches this, that they're going to break the laws of the king. So that sealed it, right? Nothing was going to change about this situation. So it was done. And so Darius goes home, and you can imagine what kind of a night that was. Usually, he would have lived in the lap of luxury. He would have had concubines. He would have had the best food. He would have had the best wine. He would have had everything. He was the most powerful guy in the kingdom. Everything would have been at his disposal. But instead of having those luxuries, he fasted and he meditated more than likely to the God of Daniel, begging the God of Daniel that Daniel be kept alive. And this was more than just praying for him to be rescued. This was a test of deities. This was a test of if you're up there, if you're real... If, 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 you, if you love your son Daniel, you need to step in and do something. So the next day he rushed back to the den. Hopefully, there's a sense of expectation. Maybe something has happened. Maybe something has changed. And of course it had. Daniel has been delivered multiple times in his life that we see. And he's delivered again. And Daniel answers the king. King says, are you still down there? Yes, I am. May the king live forever. He says, the lion's mouths have been shut And they've been shut because I've been found innocent in front of God. Not only that, he says, King, I haven't done anything against you either. I didn't go behind your back. I didn't break any laws. And so the angel that helped Daniel, here's just a little fun thing to talk about. The angel that helped Daniel, they think more than likely is the same being that helped Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter three out of the fiery furnace. Now, when we talked about chapter three, we talked about this it was either an angel of God or a lot of theologians believe it was what's called a Christophany, which means a physical manifestation of God. Jesus would have shown up and helped them out of the furnace. So get this. Daniel is down in a lion's den. You talk about what a night. Not only is he hanging out with lions, right? He's like, you know, petting Simba all night. All night he's hanging out with lions. And then at the very least, an angel shows up and possibly Christ incarnate shows up and hangs out with Daniel all night. Let's just say it was an angel for argument's sake. You're hanging out like shooting the breeze with an angel petting a lion all night. Kind of cool, right? So this is what happens to him. What a night. And so Daniel spent the night with these lions. And so what we see is this. It is typically, this is so huge. It is typically in our most difficult trying times that we get closer to God than ever. People ask all the time, why does God allow suffering? You know what? I can give you the stock answer of sin was introduced and it's not God's fault because of the fall of humanity, all these things, and that's why we have suffering. But I don't know all the reasons why God still, still allows suffering, but I know this. Community comes from suffering. Growth comes from suffering. The people that I go to and I want to get advice on how to live my life are people who have been through the ringer. There are people that have been through the fire and they've come out the other side and God has refined them and he has done things to them and they have life lessons that they can teach me. If you've ever met someone that's never been through hard times, they typically don't have much to offer. I don't mean that mean, but suffering brings growth and it brings community and we see that in Daniel. We see that in Daniel. So the king is overjoyed, right? Awesome, yeah, Daniel saved me. And we get this weird blend of this gracious, awesome, like loving king. Oh, Daniel, I love you. Oh, by the way, throw those guys, their wives, and their kids in the, in the pit. And it says before they hit the ground, lions were snatching them out of the air, right? Crushing their bones, tearing them limb from limb. Fun stuff to read about. Interesting, though. And we see this kind of barbarism. We see this barbaric approach that this king had. Now, here's something important. The two reasons why Daniel was saved, the two reasons that Daniel made it out of the pit was this. He was innocent in front of God. Doesn't mean he was perfect. It means that he lived a life where he continually kept in contact with God. And when he made mistakes, he asked for forgiveness of it. He was innocent in front of God and he hadn't committed crimes against other people. This is in fact the core of the entire Holy Bible to honor God with our lives and to be in communication with Him and to not hurt others or treat others poorly. In fact, Jesus said, you can sum up this entire thing, right? Let's see, mine is 2,500 pages almost. You can sum up this entire book, Jesus said, in two simple statements. Love your God and love other people. And because humans needed it written out to them over stories and stories and thousands of pages just to get the simple idea that we are to put God first and we are to put others second. And that's simply what Daniel did and he was saved because of it. Last part. So then King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation, language who live in all the earth. This is a letter. He said, May your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God And he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, for his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So Darius sends out another decree. If you go back to chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, in fact the whole chapter 4 is a decree, it's a letter sent out from Nebuchadnezzar talking about what God has done in the life of Daniel to know the testimony of God's power. Now we don't know the exact state of Darius's soul. Theologians don't believe that he exclusively gave his life to God. They believed he acknowledged God but he had other gods in his life. But he does acknowledge the sovereignty and the power of God In this short letter. And so, Daniel's attitude, his choices, and his actions made an impact on a second king. The first king, Nebuchadnezzar, became a follower of the true God and ended his life well, right? We'll probably see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, unless something changed, but we will probably see him in heaven. And so, for the second time now, the fourth king that Daniel's under, He now has another positive impact on a pagan king. And what that shows us is this, that our lives, the life of the believer who acknowledges that Christ is first, will result in a testimony that will positively affect those around us. Not our bumper stickers, not our tattoos, not our t-shirts and our hats, not that those things are wrong, but what will positively change the world is not a bumper sticker. What will change the lives of the people around you is how you live. It's what you do. It's the actions. It's your attitudes. It's how you conduct yourself. That will build up a testimony, and it will positively impact the people around you. And so as for Daniel, who lived an exemplary life, he prospered, it said, during the reign of Darius and Cyrus, who were the two leaders of the Persian Empire. And he lived several more years, and what he did in kind of the twilight of his life, we're going to see in the next, seven, or next uh, six chapters, is he studied the Word of God, and he worked on his memoirs, which were the book of Daniel, right? And he had those published in about 532 BC. So what we see in this chapter is we see two different kinds of faith. We see the faith of Darius, and we see the faith of Daniel. Now, the faith of Darius is a little bit different than the faith of Daniel. Again, we don't know everything about him. We don't know. He could have exclusively given his life, but most theologians don't think he did. So Darius had faith. And if you go back and read at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, and at the end of Darius's life, they talked about the God of Daniel differently. To Nebuchadnezzar, it was personal. He's my God too. And Darius refers to him as the God of Daniel. Now he acknowledged that the God of Daniel could do great things. He acknowledged that. But what this says to me and I hope to back it up here in a second with the Scripture, is that a belief in the ability and the belief in the person of God is incomplete. It means that I can believe that there's one God. I can believe that He can do all things, but that is incomplete. A faith in God and a faith in His ability, if that faith does not change my heart and my mind, the Bible calls it a dead faith this is going to mess with your theology a little bit, okay? Because some denominations have twisted this and told you incorrectly. But the Bible says this. In fact, the brother of Jesus, James, said this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith, but he doesn't have works? Now, it doesn't mean that works save you. We're going to read that here in a second. It doesn't mean that works save you. But if there is a saving faith, if one truly understands the cross, then it says that living waters will flow out of us, good things will flow out of us. If he has faith, but he doesn't have action, can his faith save him? No, that kind of faith doesn't save people. It's a dead faith. It says in the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works in and of itself, is dead. It's a dead faith. Right now, in Christendom, in Christianity in North America, there's apparently about 70% that have faith in God. They believe He's up there. They may even believe He's exclusive And they believe he can do all things, but they have not let God permeate their minds and their hearts in such a manner to where they live more like Jesus. They have not done that. And we see that in our culture, and we see that around us. So there is a faith that exists in this room, in this town. There is a faith that James says is dead. It is a dead faith. And then there's the opposite of that, which is a faith that permeates us, a faith where the Holy Spirit fills us up and it changes our thoughts, it changes our hearts, therefore changes the actions that come out of us. And this is what is called a saving faith. This is the faith of Nebuchadnezzar. This is the faith of Daniel. This is a faith that says, even if the lions tear me apart, I still find my hope in God. Even if the country goes to hell… Even if economies tank, even if they take my house and my cars, even if I don't get the promotion, even if people threaten my life, even if my politician doesn't get elected, even if nothing goes the way I want it to go, even if the lions of culture and economies and politics and religion, even if those lions eat me up, I still know that God is everything He says He is. Even if everything comes against me, as David said, even though tens of thousands are encamped around me, God, I know that you're my shield. God, I know that you're my protector. That we find our hope, our contentment, and our love in Christ not in circumstances, but in truth. Do you get that? If our circumstances determine our faith, we're all screwed. Because it's going to get worse before it gets better. We know that because the Word of God says so. So we must find our hope, our contentment, and our love in Christ now. And it's this kind of faith, a saving faith, a true faith that permeates the believer. This is the kind of faith that changes our hearts. It changes how we think, and therefore it changes what we do. When our mind is renewed, like Romans 12 says, and our heart is renewed, when our mind and our heart is changed to fit the way Christ wants us to live naturally, we will do good things for other people. Works do not save us, but when we're saved, we do good works. In fact, Jesus said you're saved for the purpose of doing good works, for the purpose of helping the neighbor, for the purpose of spreading the gospel, for the purpose of loving those that are unlovable. And that brings us to the last point. It is a saving faith that enables us to see people like Jesus sees people. It is a saving faith that instead of living in fear, instead of looking at the whore or the queer or the black person or the white person and judging them based on those things and looking at them like culture teaches us to look at people, that we look at people like you're a child of God. You're made in the image of God. God loves you more than anything. So a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Because Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him. And he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? You aren't greater than Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and he drank from it as his sons did in his livestock. Jesus said everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. Everyone who drinks of a physical substance, everyone who finds their comfort and sustenance in the world will never be satisfied, he says. But whoever drinks from the water that I give them will never thirst again, ever. In fact, the water that I will give you will become a well of water springing up from within for eternal life. So one day, Jesus is hanging out, right, by a well, pretty famous well. A woman walks up to get water, a woman of a different race that Jews look down on, a different belief that Jews looked down on, right? A different part of town, different things, right? Not just that, it was a woman in this culture, and men and women wouldn't hang out like that and talk in in, in public like that. Not just a woman, but pardon my language, this woman was a whore. Had been with a lot of dudes. And so she sits down and Jesus says, hey, can you get me some water too? And so she gets a little sassy with him, right? Because Jews and Samaritans just don't talk. Christians and Muslims, they just don't talk, right? So, like, they got together at this well. Christians and Buddhists, Christians and gays, Christians and people who live promiscuous lives, they just don't talk, right? So this person was hostile because no one of that faith ever took the time to talk to her. And so as Jesus sat down, he didn't preach at her. He didn't call her bad names. He didn't pull out his King James Version Bible, tell her how bad she was. He didn't do any of that. He just said, hey, I don't care about your race, I don't care about your gender, I don't care about your occupation, I don't even care about your past right now. But do you know the things that you continually go back to for sustenance will never satisfy you? Have you tried me yet? And it says that she accepted Jesus, and then she went right back to her town, and the whole town was converted. Listen. When we have a saving faith that lives through us, it says, because Jesus said it, that there's like a spring that bubbles up out of us. And when that living water bubbles up out of us, it pours on to other people, and then those people may take that message and they may convert whole cities. The hearts of man will only change when we have a saving faith that starts to look at people, not as a sexual deviant, not as a different color, not as a different race, Not as a different gender, not as poor or rich, not as radical or moderate, but when we just start looking at people like Jesus looks at people, things happen. Things happen. People change. We change. If you have a faith that there is one God, it says in James that even the devils in hell believe that, and they're afraid of Him. That is not a saving faith. Faith. A saving faith is a faith that gets so ingrained in your head and in your heart that it changes everything you do, everything you do. If you do not have that kind of faith, you can today. You just have to ask Christ to fill you. You have to ask that living water. You have to ask that Holy Spirit, and God will give you that. you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Lord, for everyone in this room that, 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 that knows who you are, I pray, Father, that they take it to another level, God, and you, they, they let your Holy Spirit fill them from their head to their toes, that you permeate their brain, that you permeate their heart, and from, because of those two things, God, that their actions change, that how they look at people changes, how they treat their wives and their husbands and their kids and their neighbors changes. I pray, God, that we look at people different from us and we look at them with love and compassion. And, Lord, that we can be the conduits, that we can be the vessels that shows other people the love of Christ and the grace of Christ and the humility of Christ. God, if there are people in this room that do not know you, I pray, Father, that you just start to work on their heart, that you start to speak to them and that you start to with, your, with the still, small voice that you do, God, that you start to touch their heart. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there's people to my left. If you need prayer for absolutely anything, they would love to pray with you. There is communion on my right and left that everyone is welcome to take as long as you have asked God to forgive you of your sins. That represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone is welcome to take that. Please be respectful of people who are taking that if you want to leave. Please kind of keep your voices down and please just, just be respectful of those around you. But you guys are welcome to take that. Father God, we love you. Just touch our hearts, Father. Strengthen us, God, and lead us and guide us. Lord, we love you and we lift you up and praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys so much for your patience.